0: Hello and welcome to Red Rock Relationships, a podcast about communication. Let's unpack the relationships that we encounter in our daily lives and learn about what makes them tick. And now your host for Red Rock Relationships, Dr. James B. Stein. Hey, how we doing? It is uh, now a sunny day all of a sudden. It was gloom and doom. All morning long, I went into my office to run some very fun statistics on, you guessed it, interpersonal communication. And when I came out, the sun was out. So I went for a walk with my dog. So that was a nice little, uh, trip right there. We are back to talk about something that's very near and dear to my heart, uh, social networks and interpersonal communication and relationships. And to help us do that, we have Dr. Catherine Fiori joining us. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Anytime. My pleasure. Um, <clears throat> on the show, we've been spending a lot of time talking about um, individual perceptions. Uh, our first couple of episodes were about uncertainty and then kind of the self and identity. Um, and I think it's fitting that we navigate to those who are not ourself for this episode. I'm very excited to talk about it with you. Um, but before we do, I'm hoping you can give us a little bit of an introduction, uh, you know, kind of who you are, what your background is, how you got into studying, because you're not a calm person, uh, right. but we do have overlapping research interests. So can you tell us a little bit about what you do and where you come from?
1: Sure. So I completed my undergraduate work at Duke University back in 2000, and then I got my PhD in developmental psychology at the University of Michigan in 2007. So while I was at the U of M, I studied the importance of social relationships for the health and well-being of older adults. It wasn't actually until years later, um, when I was in a full-time faculty position at Adelphi University, where I am now, it's in Garden City, New York, just outside New York City, Mm -hmm. um, that I began to collaborate with a friend from graduate school who studied marriage. Uh, We began to think about how couples navigate um, joining social networks. So we sort of, you know. Combined our interests in marriage and social networks to think about the potential benefits and pitfalls of the process of, of joining social networks um, You know having been with my own partner now for over 20 years and, and married for over 10 years I know all too well the complicated and sometimes unexpected consequences of, of sharing a social network So mm-hmm. that's kind of how I got into this area of research
0: very cool. Very cool. And uh, I, I want the opportunity to say at Adelphi University, uh, just a few miles away from Long Island, where my family is from. <laughs> That's right. Yep. <laughs> so um, so it's interesting that you got into marriage. I, I don't study marriage. I study more like fledgling couples. And, uh, you know, um, we had some folks on to talk about friends with benefits last season, and that's more my cup of tea. But uh, we were fortunate enough to meet at my favorite conference, the International Association for Relationship Research uh, at, at Colorado State that year. Um, and I attended one of your presentations, and you were talking about duo-centered networks, and you were talking about hierarchical mapping techniques, and I was just like, I need to learn all of these things right now. And then, wouldn't you know, we were able to collect some data together, and now we've uh, published at least once or twice together, so that's always fun, Um, both for the CV and just for the sake of networking. I love working with non-com people.
1: Yeah, it it was actually my first IARR conference. I had always attended gerontology conferences, because my focus was on late life, Um, but it was my, my colleague who convinced me to go to a relationships conference and honestly, it was, it was one of the best conference experiences I've ever had. So hopefully we'll get to do another in-person IARR conference
0: I'm te- soon. I'm telling you right now, I'll be in London this summer. <laughs> I'll be vaccinated and I'll yeah. be in London this summer. That's happening one way or another.
1: <laughs> right, regardless of whether the conference is
0: happening. Exactly, exactly. So um, let's talk a little bit about the social network. Um, I don't know if this yeah. happens for you when you... Uh, collect data when I do it and I use the word social network. People think I'm talking about like social media, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat. Um, and we have to be really clear that, like, no, 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 this is not what we're talking about your social network. So, can you help our listeners to understand exactly what we mean when we say the word social network?
1: Sure. Yeah, that does happen a lot. I mean, where the way we use social networks, can it can really be thought of as, as just the social relationships surrounding you as you move through life. So mm-hmm. people vary in terms of the number of social relationships, or sometimes we call them social ties in their networks. Um, but the social ties themselves also vary primarily in terms of like whether that person is related to you or not, or how related they are to you. Like, Are they family versus friend? How close they are to you? Um, meaning you know how central they are to sort of your day-to-day quality of life. So to understand a social network as a whole, you have to consider the number of ties as well as how close each tie is and how related each tie is to you. Um, so research shows that the size of an individual social network is actually limited by your own resources, and those are things like time and energy. So there's actually an upper limit to the number of social relationships you can maintain in your personal social network mm. because of your own limits on time and energy. Um, and I don't know, James, if you're familiar with Dunbar's number, but there's this concept called Dunbar's number based on, on research by a British anthropologist named Robin Dunbar who said that we can only really maintain about 150 connections at once. Mm -hmm. As it turns out, the larger a network becomes, the fewer resources we have left for enhancing emotional closeness in any one relationship. Um, According to Dunbar's theory, there are different sort of layers of relationships in our social networks with the tightest social circle consisting of just around five loved ones. The next layer would be like 15 good friends, Mm -hmm. the next layer would be about 50 friends and, you know, 150 meaningful contacts and the next layer, et cetera. So James, you had mentioned um, the hierarchical mapping technique. That's actually a, a technique that was used by my, or it continues to be used, but was developed by my advisor back in graduate school, Dr. Tony Antonucci, oh, that's so who cool. would ask people about their networks in in this sort of like hierarchical yeah. way. So placing yourself in the center, who would you put in the innermost circle around you, those mm-hmm. who you consider you can't imagine your life without, And then she had two sort of circles outside of that where you could actually name people in your network.
0: Yeah, yeah. And we will, you know what I will do? Uh, I'll post a picture of that on social media because it's a hierarchical mapping technique. It sounds really complicated. It's actually like the simplest thing ever. You draw a bullseye and then you you talk about the the layers of that bullseye. Um, I like the number that you gave. It is possible to uh, uh, maintain 150-ish meaningful connections. If you think about people's friends list on things like Facebook and Instagram, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds if not thousands of people. Um, But then when we ask people to talk about those people who carry substance, uh, the literature says that like most people are really more like 13 to 18 people who they are super close with. And the data that we collected echoes that we were at, I think 15 people not including uh, the romantic partner. So. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I
1: was just going to say, I mean, it. it and I think, think it relates to the sort of like finite amount of time and energy we have that places limits on the social network. I mean, um, what's obviously, if you invest more time and energy into kind of like weaker ties, you might have a larger number of ties overall, but then you might have fewer close ties in your network. And the research shows that like how much time and energy people expend on various relationships also depends on their own Characteristics, right? So mm-hmm. things like personality. Extroverts might have a larger network and spread themselves more thinly across their friends, whereas introverts might concentrate on a smaller pool of like very close contacts.
0: Yeah, and this we actually got to talking about that just a little bit last week when we were talking about the importance of like self and identity and like who you want to present yourself as. Okay, so the network is this um, sort of ever changing, dynamic, flowing group of, uh, of people who vary in closeness. Well. What is a network not like? What, who are the folks that we're not talking about here that are not comprising our network?
1: Actually, when when you asked me that question, what is the network not? Actually, what what instantly came to mind was how you had described the network before as sort of ever changing, um, dynamic, right? And and actually, that was a point I wanted to bring up that that the social network is not static, right? So people move in and out of our network all of the time. Um, you know, we, given what I said about limited resources, we typically don't add a lot of people to our network without other people leaving the network first. And these are not typically sudden drastic changes. So we gradually lose touch with some people while we gradually get to know others. And I think one thing people often forget is how much the makeup of our social network depends on the context we're in. Mm -hmm. So the group of people who are available to us to interact with, so are what you might call... Our individual social opportunity structure is very much defined by our context our environment so while we're in college a lot of our friend network is made up of other college students who we get to know in classes university organizations dorms things like that when we start a full-time job a lot of our friendships develop out of acquaintances from work um, and as parents many of our relationships develop with the parents of children's of our children's classmates so mm-hmm. We see changes in the makeup of individual social networks across the lifespan as they encounter sort of different developmental contexts. So I, I wanted to, to bring that up because I think that's a really important point. Um, and then there's also some, some debate about, like, you know, there's, there's this terminology used for people who you are maybe less connected with. It's sometimes called weak ties or peripheral ties. Mm-hmm. Um, one researcher calls um, another type of tie a consequential stranger this is like the barista that you run into at the Starbucks that you knows your order every over day and but over you, again, you don't have right. like, a close personal connection with them right so mm-hmm. um, and and those are the ties you know that it, it's not clear like how you know, whether those would be actually included in, in someone's network if you were writing out your network you you right. clearly wouldn't put a consequential stranger in there because you don't know their name for example mm-hmm. Um but those ties, it doesn't mean that they're not important. So this term weak um, sometimes bothers me because it implies that it's an unimportant tie. But as many of us have discovered throughout this pandemic, it's those ties that we actually miss the most, right? A lot of us have been able to sort of maintain contact, whether it be virtual or in person with our closest ties, right? Our our partner, our family members. Um, but it's these more peripheral ties, like the, the colleague you would see in the hall at work, um, that... That we really miss because of this mm-hmm. pandemic. So again, I, it, it's not necessarily someone you would include if you were drawing out your social network per se, um, but that's not to say that those ties are not important.
0: Right. I'm, and I'm so glad you brought that up because in the study, in the field of communication, like this is something that Malcolm Parks looked at, um, and like that's it. And this is we're talking about the '80s, and so we've have seen um, you know clinical psychologists, sociologists, anthropologists, um, you know, really the whole gamut. Um, study this field, and we don't see enough of it, in my opinion, in communication, because these folks are really important to our life, and therefore, they are meaningful uh, to the closer relationships that we have, like a partnership. So, so, you know, I'm jazzed to be talking about it, but I'm wondering if we can talk just like a little bit about, uh, the real world effect like i don't know if you're familiar with sue sprecker's work but she's one of my academic idols she mm-hmm. has all but written the book on the ways in which a person or a couple's social network influences their um you know th- their relationship progression their development their sense of self and their sense of hey h- here's who i should be in a relationship with can you if you can summarize mm-hmm. sue sprecker's work
1: yeah i mean i can certainly a lot of a lot of her work shows um you know the sort of like powerful role that friends and family Mm -hmm. can play in the functioning of romantic relationships but like just thinking more broadly like what happens when you know two people with two different social networks become romantically involved, right? Like what happens with the social networks? Um, And what's interesting is that historically, people used to be introduced to potential partners through through their friends and family, right? Or they would meet people who lived in the same building or on the same block. And in that sense, they often already shared much of their network. So becoming romantically involved didn't change things that drastically for their social networks. But with the rise of online dating, people are frequently introducing two entirely distinct social networks when they come together. So that makes this merging that much more challenging. Ideally, right, joining two social networks sounds like it would be a good thing because partners have access to to more social resources, which, you know, should be good. But in reality, it's not that simple. Um, And, and, and Sue Sprecher's work and some other people's work, you know, shows that this is true, especially right from the beginning of a relationship. So if you have a new partner and your friends and family approve of your relationship, you're, you're more likely not only to stay together, but also to have other positive relationship outcomes, like better relationship satisfaction, greater feelings of love and commitment. But if your friends and or family do not approve of your partner, that can lead to declines in relationship quality, or even the end of the relationship. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, in my own research, what we found is that it's not only important to consider what your your friends and family think of your partner, but also what you think about your partner's social network. Right. There's a lot of work, for example. I mean, in, in terms of the the work on married couples, at least there's a lot of work about the stress of relating to in-laws. Married couples often report that relationships with in-laws are one of their biggest sources of conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, friends are often put in a different category since they're thought to become um, more interdependent the longer couples are together. In other words, it's thought that couples share more and more friends over time. And in fact, that's often treated as an indicator of, of how committed the the partners are to each I other know. and how many friends that they share. Um, but like in-laws, our, our partner's friends can also negatively affect our relationship. Um, you're probably, I think one of the, the, probably what I I talked about at that conference you mentioned, IAR, back in in Colorado in 2018, with some of my own research with newlywed couples who were followed Mm -hmm. over time that showed that couples in which husbands um, disapproved of their wife's friends in the first year of marriage were actually much more likely to divorce over the course of the next 16 years. Um, And a study that we worked on together more recently with 200 young adults, um, we found that interference from and tension about partners, friends um, was related to worse relationship quality. Um, so, you know, certainly both our own friends and family and our partners, friends and family could potentially provide us with support and bolster our romantic relationship, but they can also undermine it. And I think that's important to understand.
0: Yeah. And I think you, you've you just... Uh maybe unintentionally described the opposite of a working hypothesis that's referred to as the Romeo and Juliet effect. And it says that, you know, uh, as people disapprove of your network, it's kind of like a you and me against the world, baby, that sort of mentality. And the research actually does not bore that out even a little bit. It is overwhelmingly the other way around. If your friends and family are not with your partner, it is going to make things more difficult and it is going to tend to Put you in a position where you might actually not like your partner as much because you look around and you say, "Well, I like my friends. My friends don't like my partner. What am I not seeing?" Right? And this is this comes back to what we talked about week one uh, when we when we went over uncertainty uh, and the specific uncertainties that you can have uh, about your network, about your partner's network, and then uh, about the shared network, which we refer to as duo centered. Um,
1: right. And I think you you bring up a good point. I mean, it's also true that like you might not like your partner's friends, and wonder if I don't like my partner's friends, how, how am I, I, like, I dislike these people so much, how, how could I like my partner? It makes you uncertain about your partner as well. So it, right. it can go kind of both ways. Um, but yeah, I mean, I definitely think having the sort of surrounding network supporting the relationship is really important.
0: I agree, I couldn't agree more. Um, and my dissertation agrees too. <laughs> um, um, so okay, one big thing that the research shows a lot of sue Brecker's work a lot of malcolm parks's work these re- these researchers have told us that when people consider the close relationships in their life they tend to consider their partner as someone separate from the network so there's the partner and then there's also the network and those you know those two entities can intermingle but they are distinct from each other so this often creates a, a bit of a dynamic where people are uh, attempting to juggle friend time with partner time. And so I'm going to ask you to put on, I guess, uh, what I've been calling the Dr. Phil hat here. Um, what advice can we give to people who are struggling with that balance, the ability to balance friend time uh, and network time with partner time?
1: Right. That's a that's a great question. I mean, um, there's obviously a lot of compelling evidence to support the view that intimate relationships are one of the most influential ties in individuals. Individual will have in their lifetime. But because so many people consider that this relationship so important, people end up putting a lot of unrealistic expectations on these relationships to meet all of their needs. Um, But we know, and the research shows that different relationships serve a variety of different purposes, right? So our closest ties, our partner can, for example, can provide us with emotional support, instrumental support, but we need those less close ties. Like you know, good friends or colleagues to provide us with things like opportunities for broader social engagement. So interacting with lots of different types of ties really allows us to maximize the benefits of social relationships for our well-being. Um, and as you pointed out, right, intimate, intimate relationship is not isolated from other ties. We, we can't isolate it, right? Couples are surrounded by an interconnected network of other individuals, family, in-laws, friends, acquaintances. So on the one hand, research shows that intimate relationships may actually facilitate stronger connections to others, right? but on the other hand, focusing exclusively on one's intimate relationship can actually isolate individuals from others and make them more susceptible to being adversely affected by difficulties with their partner, right? So if you've sort of put all your eggs in one basket and you focused on your partner and then you and your partner have difficulties you don't have anyone to turn to. So mm-hmm. um, in sort of the terminology used before, putting all of our time and energy into our most intimate relationship, leaves very little time and energy left to devote to other relationships. Um, some of my own research has shown that married couples whose sort of joint or duocentric, as you called them, networks are more diverse. So this would be a network in which there's like a nice balance of shared friends, friends held just by the wife or ju- and just by the husband, as well as a balance of time spent with each other's families together, but also apart, have more positive marital quality than those whose joint social networks are less diverse. So for example, um, those who focused on the wife's family, so they, the, the whole sort of joint social network was focused solely on the wife's family, um, did poorly in terms of marital quality. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the results from this and some other research suggest that a healthy combination of individual and shared ties is, is really key for both positive relationship quality and for individual mental health. So in my import, in my opinion, um, it's important to have a balance in which you have some alone time with your partner, some shared time with family and friends together, but also some time with your own friends and family separate from your partner and separate from your partner's friends or family.
0: Yeah, that's big. That's that's such a big one. And, uh, one, one thing that I've been alluding to uh, in a paper that's just about to get published uh, in Personal Relationships, I'm very excited about this, I was grappling with the editor, with the help of the editor, actually, trying to figure out a finding. And we kind of landed on this idea that um there is a difference between a duocentric network and the amount of network overlap that exists in a social network specifically when we think about a shared network we are usually thinking about voluntary relationships. I met my partner's friends. I enjoyed spending time with them. They have now become a part of my network. But when we talk about network overlap, a lot of these relationships aren't necessarily voluntary. Like for example, like you were talking about before, in-laws, right? So sometimes we are forced to have this overlap and spend time with people that without our partner, there's no chance we would spend time with these folks. And we, uh, we may really strongly dislike them, And again, this comes back to some of the work that Sue Sprecher uh, and and Flemley have done uh, as well, where they uh, talk about uh, all the negative impacts of the network. And my favorite tidbit comes from a, a, a piece that was written about 10 years ago. They found that if, my network doesn't like my relationship, they are going to go out of their way to try and screw that relationship up. They're going to put, they're going to exert effort into harming the relationship. And some of the foundational communication work shows that network members are something like 95% accurate in predicting the fate of the relationships that people Mm -hmm. in their network get into, which is terrifying, but also very useful.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And in fact, we're, Trying to get at that distinction that you mentioned mm. between sort of like overlap in, implies like just positive ties and what about the, what about those people I'm forced to interact with that I, mm-hmm. I wish were not in my joint network. Um, and I have a doctoral student who's doing her dissertation right now. Um, we collected data where we asked couples separately. We had them in you know separate rooms, interviewing them separately about those people who they consider close. And we had those, you know, the bullseye with the three circles and had them name, you know, close members of their network. And then we asked them, who in your network is problematic? And we said it could be the same people, right? Mm. Um, and what we are able to do with these, so we have you know four networks basically, four network diagrams, two from each member of the couple, one sort of close, the other problematic. We can look at not only sort of ambivalent ties within the individual's own network, like people that they consider both close and problematic. That's you know what we we term ambivalent, mm-hmm. um, but also what what I've coined um, couple level ambivalence, right? So someone I might consider close, but my partner considers very oh, problematic, right? And what happens if that. there's a lot of people like that in your joint social network yeah. that can be particularly detrimental to sort of relationship outcomes?
0: I would love to see the ratio between, uh, like you said, ambivalent problematic folks uh, at the individual versus at the couple level and how issues like satisfaction and trust and all of those really important key uh, relationship indicators vary based on that, um, because like, right. I've, like I've said before, in the communication world, there's just not enough focus. Uh, we, we look at the dyad too much and not enough mm-hmm. the ocean that surrounds that island.
1: Right. So- yeah. And I mean, in terms of just sort of it- advice, I mean, obviously it's different whether you're, you're at the beginning of a relationship versus you're already in a relationship and you've been dealing with problematic you know, people in your partner's network for a long time. But like for new relationships, obviously it's Im- important to get to know who your partner knows, right? That these people may be part of your life for a long time and avoiding the issues early on won't make them go away. Um, making sure you talk to your own family and friends about how they talk to your partner and watch what you say about your partner in front of your family and friends, right? So mm-hmm. complaining to your friends about your partner may help you feel, may make you feel better in the short term, but it might negatively impact your relationship in the long term.
0: Yeah, and then you know. <laughs> yeah. Now they're going to see that person as problematic. Of, like people
1: you've been together with for a long time. Right. And there's no, you know, there's no getting rid of those people, right? It might be useful to kind of acknowledge the types of things that these friends and family may do for you, right? Trying to see the reframe in the positive. Like, can they, are they benefiting my partner, even though I don't like them? Are they helping us as a couple in, in maybe some instrumental way, providing financial assistance or something like that?
0: All right. Uh, well, be important. Uh, so thank you so much for your time, uh, Dr. Fiori. It's been a blast. Next time we'll talk about social support and how that all ties into all this, but for now, Take care. You've been listening to Red Rock Relationships, a podcast about communication. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time. If you'd like to be on the show or have questions for us, please send us an email to redrockrelationships at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Just search Red Rock Relationships. Thank you again. And remember, it all begins with good communication.